Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, I'm talking with my friend and fellow slasher, Timma, about his favorite horror film, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. Honey, I've got a guest. And you don't want to keep him waiting. That's right, I don't. Much like Texas Chainsaw, the Nightmare series is one I really haven't discussed much on the podcast, and I can think of few films in the series with which I'd rather start. I mean, yeah, I could start at the beginning with the first Nightmare, but that's not Tim's favorite, so... Dream Warriors is what matters right now. Because we're starting with the third film in the franchise, I'll move forward with the assumption that if you're listening, you're at least vaguely familiar with the first Nightmare film, so I won't be providing much in the way of, like, stuff you need to know prior to the discussion. I will be following it up with a few of my personal favorite fun facts about the film, though, uh, the ones that weren't covered in our conversation, and I'll wrap up with yet another worst-case scenario. <laughs> Shocking, I know. Before we can dive into all that, I do have a couple of quick points of interest. Firstly, a big congratulations to Steve Merlot and the gang of The Sawyer Massacre, that new TCM fan film I've been raving about for the past couple of weeks, for crushing their initial crowdfunding goal. They're now up over $2,000, which is nearly 20% of their overall goal, and I'm just so happy to see people rallying to back this project. If you aren't familiar with it, feel free to go back to my episode last week where Steve and I talked about the film and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, or check out their Indiegogo campaign. They're offering some really cool and affordable rewards for their backers. The smallest amount is like two bucks. For two dollars, you get a perk. There are about 35 days left of the campaign, so... I'd say jump on it. This is a fan film you won't want to miss. Secondly, the reviews are flooding in from the South by Southwest Film Festival, and it seems like there were a couple of standout horror titles debuted this year, including two films that I'm specifically kind of excited about. The first is called Here Before, written and directed by first-timer Stacy Gregg. From what I understand, this is more psychological thriller than horror, but the first look on YouTube genuinely disturbed me, pretty much from start to finish. I felt so tense and frightened, and the best part is I'm not even sure what I was watching exactly, so well done, Stacy. You're already in my head, and I haven't even seen your film. Additionally, a ton of reviewers are losing their minds over The Feast, a reportedly disgusting yet enchanting cautionary tale, and the first look for that one definitely intrigued me. I thought I knew where it was going, but then it didn't go that way, and now I'm insanely curious. It reminds me a bit of like The Invitation and Parasite and even The Last Supper with, I mean, of course, quite a bit more grotesquery than the latter if the reviews are to be believed. This is evidently a very gross film. <laughs> so yeah, I recommend looking up Here Before and The Feast uh, of the festival reviews. Those are the ones that piqued my interest the most. For a little recommended reading, over at horrornews.net, Gray Underwood explores a topic that I had honestly never really thought much about, although now I'll be thinking about it, and uh, it seems apropos. The article is entitled Too Much Horror Business, The Impact of Horror on Rock Music. It's less like an article, actually, and more like a complete starter class in 
in the history and evolution of rock and roll, heavy metal, and gothic industrial music, and the many ways in which those musicians have drawn inspiration from both horror films and just generally frightening or evil imagery and concepts. He begins the article by saying, The passion, the morbid romanticism, and the emotional release provided by both rock music and the horror genre, and their ability to tackle the kinds of lurid themes that other artistic genres are afraid to touch, make them a fitting and potent pairing. Underwood touches down on so much, it can be a little overwhelming, but I'm glad I powered through it because I felt like I learned a lot, and it was fun to take such a long look at like the various references and tributes to the things that scare us that are woven into the music we love, if that makes sense. This was an ambitious topic, and I have to tip my hat to Gray for tackling it with such depth and devotion. Lastly, and for no other reason but to satisfy my own nerdy impulses, I would like to offer a belated happy birthday to Brad Dorif. Happy birthday, Brad Dorif. I, I know you'll never hear this, but happy birthday all the same. What are you fucking nuts? All right, that's all I've got for this week. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. One very quick thing to note, during our discussion, we talk about uh, Dr. Sims, and I referred to her as a nurse multiple times. I think it's just because we were talking about, you know, how she relates to Nurse Ratchet, and um, I, I know she's not a nurse. I know she's a doctor. As usual, if you haven't seen the first, third, and fourth films in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, proceed with caution, because I'm pretty sure we will spoil all three of those films for you. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. Direct continuation of the first Nightmare on Elm Street. It ignores everything that happened in uh, Freddy's Revenge. And it sees the return of Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson and John Saxon as her father, as well as Robert England as Freddy Krueger, of course. And it also stars a young Patricia Arquette as Kristen, one of the last of the surviving Elm Street children uh, who have all been institutionalized at the Weston Hill Psychiatric Center. Nancy is there at the hospital acting uh, as uh, an intern and helping the kids as she realizes that they are being hunted down by Freddy and... Uh, with the help of Kristen's like dream power of pulling people into her dreams, they all sort of band together and form the Dream Warriors to take Freddy down. This is your favorite horror film of all time, Tim, or is it just just your favorite nightmare film? I would say probably my all time, to be honest with you. It's one of those movies, at least to me, it had actual story for it. It wasn't just the sake of gore for the sake of gore. Yeah. And you were still able to maintain the horror aspect. So you had a very good story and the horror aspect to go for. And you don't see that in really recent horror movies. I mean, there's a couple, but, you know, they're so far and few in between. It was one of those smart scripts and you kind of got to give Wes Craven credit for that. It wasn't, I guess you could say, a straightforward horror movie, but it wasn't. It didn't transgress into what it was after where it became more of a comedy act. It was like right in that perfect mixture of both horror. Well, it's I guess you could say it was pretty much horror. There wasn't really that much funny stuff in it. It was probably one of the darker movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think Wes Craven having a hand in the script. I mean, you know, the script got... It was so very different by the end. But Wes Craven's initial ideas, having been a part of it, I think is is definitely um, 
a huge contributor to to how and why the story works. That and Frank Darabont. He did really great things with the story. It kind of balances right on the cusp between the nightmare films being sort of straightforward, scary films and then becoming a bit more like parody-esque and leaning harder into the comedy. Freddy became more of a caricature after that. And I, I feel like there are moments in this film. It's easy to see how he was taken in that direction. But at the same time, it was still very much like a straightforward horror film. There are some really scary things that happen in Dream Warriors. You know? <laughs> well, that was actually the very first horror movie that I ever watched. And I had to use cons to get to see it, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, how old were you when you saw it? When I seen that movie, you got to remember, between theaters and movies at that period of time, before it hit home video, it was about a year in between from when it was actually at theater to video. Because when when those hit the VHS tapes, the new one was already at the theater. So you're actually a year behind if you're waiting for home video. So that was 1988 when I actually seen it. So I was seven, eight years old. I was actually attending Catholic school when I see this. Oh, nice. <laughs> I remember going to the local video store and I seen the poster in a window. I didn't know who Freddie was. I know what my parents had said. They said he was a child molester and all this, and they didn't really want me watching that type of movie. My parents were like, absolutely not. We're not going to let you watch this. You're eight years old, seven years old. We're not going to let you watch this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that summer... I just kept hounding and hounding and hounding. One week before school started, my father finally gave it. And he's like, I'm going to get this for you just so I could stop hearing about it. However, (laughs) if I hear anything about it afterward that you can't sleep or anything like that, I don't want to know nothing. So me being me, of course, I'm not going to say nothing. I didn't sleep for like two weeks after watching this movie. <laughs> and, and, and the worst part was I couldn't say nothing because if I said something, there'd be no more nightmare down streets in the house. <laughs> That's great, though, that you managed to to suffer through that, you know, for the sake of getting to see more in the future. It also made me petrified of hospitals afterwards, too. That whole nurse thing was the first time I actually seen nudity in a movie on top of it. I'm like... That's how nurses act. <laughs> I was eight. I didn't know any better. You know, I didn't know what was going on. I've been in a hospital before. That was one of like the best lines in that movie, though, too. Are you tongue-tied? I'm like, oh. <laughs> they had a, lots of good one-liners in that movie. Sorry, kids. I don't believe in fairy tales. <laughs> I think it was part two and part three. I think those are the ones that had the heaviest themes as far as being dark goes because obviously we know what part two was all about the underlying themes but part three it seems like it focused more on like suicide and stuff like that Mm -hmm. even though it didn't directly confront it you could tell that was a theme of what they were going for in the movie and i think at that age i didn't realize what was going on i was just like this is pretty cool i think that's one of the charms those first few nightmare films you know i mean each one of those films was exploring something that was was considered in in one way or another to be taboo or too dark for the average movie going audience and so they got around that with subtleties like you had the child molestation in the first one you had the homosexual undertones of the second and then you had teen suicide in, in dream warriors and i think that was so clever and and charming it's one of the things that makes the series that those first three films so charming and then after that he 
we don't know what happened. And it, he yeah. kind of he kind of redeemed himself with New Nightmare, but yeah, with Dream Warriors two, it's either a movie you're absolutely gonna like or one you're not gonna like as much as the other ones. Uh, because that was also one of the movies where rock music was actually starting to get more into the soundtracks <laughs> yeah. at that time. Nightmare three was actually my first introduction to Dokken as well because I wasn't allowed to watch MTV in the house. So oh, really. Really? Oh, man. So, <laughs> I couldn't have yeah. lived without MTV as a kid. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother would let me watch it. But as far as watching it at the house, I was not allowed to watch MTV because it was trash. So that was my first introduction to Dokken. And, you know, at the same time, uh, I think it was... Friday the 13th, 6th, they had Alice Cooper doing one of the songs for their soundtrack. So, you know, that period of time, you had all this rock music in there, and it's like, now I'm being introduced to music I've never heard before. God, so Dream Warriors kind of reared you, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Introduced you to rock music and boobs and, you know, all all the stuff to love about it. I mean, there were so many firsts in that movie that I was never, because I was very sheltered at the time. There was stuff that I, (laughs) you know, and it's just like, okay, so now I got to see nudity in a movie. I was never allowed to see it before this movie. My parents probably didn't know there was any in this movie, so (laughs) they let that one slide. I was introduced to hard rock music. (laughs) And I got to see my first horror movie all in one shot. That's fantastic. I can definitely see that alone, I think, is reason enough for for this to be, like, at the top of your, your horror list, you know? Yeah. But so, like, apart from that, like, what would you say sets this film specifically apart from all of the other Nightmare on Elm Street films for you? Like, I mean, I know we've talked a little bit already about, you know, that balance of the the story and the horror and, and things like that and, and on all of the first. But, like, looking at this compared to like the first Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, New Nightmare. What do you think sets it apart the most from those other Nightmare films? It's use of practical effects. Ah, yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. I was telling you earlier today that I finally got to rewatch it after about five years. And, you know, those effects, for the most part, they still hold up. They do. They, they really, really do. do. They did such a fine job with that, especially when I think it was Philip. When he had his ligaments cut and he was turned into a puppet. The only thing I had an issue with was we didn't get to see the actual cuts, which I think would have been cool. But I think the lack of showing that gore effect just made that scene a lot more stronger than it was. Because you're already imagining the worst before they even cut to him. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I totally agree. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the practical effects in, in Dream Warriors as well. And, and, I, and you're right. That was something I noticed when I was rewatching it. Even the freddy worm you know which i know caused so many problems for them during production and in theory if you describe to someone that scene with freddy and Kristen, where he turns into the worm and he's like body slams her and then like tries to eat her alive describing that scene it sounds like it would be so hokey and even that is still it was more exciting and more you know tense and fun to look at than so many of like the cg effects that i've seen in horror in recent years when uh will was doing his whole wizard thing you could kind of tell that wasn't the great that's i think that's probably the only scene i don't think really holds up that well yeah i would agree with that in the name of lorick prince of elves demon be gone <laughs> 
obviously the makeup is top notch. Anything that Screaming Mad George had a hand in, the makeup is going to hold up pretty well. It's the thing that scared me the most when I was a kid uh, was Taryn's death and, you know, the, the little sucking sores on her arms, smacking their lips. Yeah. That really fucked with me when I was a kid. <laughs> I, it gave me nightmares um, and, you know, things like that. Again, when you describe them out loud, it sounds weird, but they really work very well and they hold up. Uh, really well today it's still very unsettling to look at and it's funny about that you mentioned that one because it seems like that was actually the start of the body parts effects yeah because i think it was was it the following one i can't remember which where uh it focused a lot on like the pepperoni pizza yeah it just seemed like (laughs) they went for grossness starting with that and it just continued on down the hill along with like you said, some of the comedy side to them, too. So Taryn's death scared me the most when I was little. Um, and I know, I know that you had mentioned, uh, like, the nurse scene really uh, creating some and confusion. It, that that, that screwed with me bad. It really did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's completely understandable. Um, what was the scariest moment in Dream Warriors for you? Oh, scariest moment. I think it would actually be Philip, the whole sleepwalker thing. Something like that could really happen. And if you're asleep, you really don't know what is going on and if you don't wake up <laughs> and you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time that's scary in itself because that could be reality to a point minus the whole ligaments and all that stuff that was probably the main reason i didn't want to fall asleep because uh, i would i was afraid i'd get up in the morning and my house had three porches at the time so imagine me walking outside something bad could happen out of it that's what i think would cause my lack of sleep for those two weeks <laughs> Poor little Timma. <laughs> yeah, poor little Tim. That movie really must be pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I can completely understand that. One of the other things that really got to me more, not necessarily the first time that I watched it, but as I got a little older, the thing that really impacts me the most in the film is Nancy's death. Because they, first of all, they did that. I think they handled it very well. If you have to bring back the final girl and you have to kill her, which I'm usually staunchly against, but if you have to, they chose a really meaningful and a really powerful way to do it. I remember feeling so relieved when we see John Saxon no longer falling down drunk and no longer being a failure as a dad, which initially in the film, John Saxon's character, the way his reappearance was really disappointing to me because I, I loved him in the first film. He wasn't a great dad in the first film, but I felt like he had kind of redeemed himself a little at the end of the first nightmare. And so I was really sad to see that he had just kind of become a pile of garbage in, in three. My baby come to see your daddy. It's been a long time. So when you think that he has that redemptive moment and you're like, the music right there is so beautiful. And you have, you know, the kids looking on and Patricia Arquette's like sweet little face is like, oh, and you're just right there with it. And that moment when you realize it's not John, that really gets me. It leaves like a pit in my stomach. <laughs> See, it's funny because I didn't, with John, I didn't have the same reaction yeah. because in the first one, you could kind of feel for him a little bit. You know, all the problems that he's going through with this one. No, it just seems like. It just goes bang, bang, bang. This is where the imperfection of this movie comes in, in my opinion. It needed more backstory. How did it get to that point after the first one? I don't think this movie really explained as far as the estrangement went. And, you know, it could have used a little bit more of that. If they went in there maybe 15 minutes and just focused on backstory a little bit more for him, I think I could have been more sympathetic to him. As a kid, you don't really analyze it. But as an adult now, you can't really 
empathize a little bit with them if you're just basing it on this alone. And I think that's where maybe one of the faults are with this movie. If I had to pick one specific fault, just like with Nancy, I think it, it just happens a little too quick. Yeah, I can definitely see what you mean. It makes sense that they didn't focus as much on John and Nancy because they they weren't really the focus of the film. It was supposed to be about the kids. So it's appropriate that we open with Kristen um, and that we get to spend a little bit of time getting to know Kincaid and Philip and Taryn and all them. And so to focus too much time or energy on explaining how Nancy and John came to be who and, and, you know, and where they are now, I can see why they wouldn't have wanted to do that. But it would have been, I think, equally nice if, you know, you have sort of a false start to the film where it starts with Nancy and John. We get a little bit of a setup for them. Them, see how they got to the present day. And then we have the sort of real start to the movie, which is with Kristen. I think that that could have been a nice way around that so that we have that bridge connecting the first film to the third one a little bit more rather than Nancy just showing up in a power suit, you know, as a grad student and John being a drunk in a bar. That's abrupt, you know. <laughs> By bringing Nancy in too, you've, with the essential role that she was going to have, they should have put a little bit more importance on her as well. I mean, she didn't have to be the focus, but it just seems like when she got introduced with the kids, and everything there really wasn't much of uh i guess you could say relationship building between the characters as far as that goes yeah looking at it objectively and you know considering the script i think yeah i think you're completely right it's one of those films that sort of presupposes an attachment to these characters without actually creating it for you i still absolutely love Patricia Arquette's performance as she's holding Nancy, you know, uh, in the wake of Nancy's death. And you you really feel this connection that those two characters specifically had. And there is a little bit of a buildup to that. But again, it does kind of come a little suddenly. I don't know what it's like to watch this movie without being in love with with Nancy and her father. And I wish that I could go back and watch it, you know, not having seen and, and been in love with those with one and seven because that's that's where a, a lot of my emotional connection comes from is my affection for just those characters i don't need a lot of them in three to to feel something but i think there should be more there yeah <laughs> and it should have built a, just maybe a little bit and i'm probably just nitpicking on that on amanda uh, kruger oh really i'm not saying devote the whole story to her but it's almost like she was there for the sake of being there more than yeah. anything i think it's funny because my least favorite thing about this film is the uh, bastard son of a hundred maniacs backstory. I, I don't like it at all. And I wish that there had just been none of that. I would have preferred she just sort of had this kind of otherworldly knowledge of how to defeat Freddy without explaining where he came from. I don't need an origin of Freddy Krueger. He's more frightening to me if I don't know where he came from. It just felt like overkill, like unnecessary overkill. That girl was Amanda Krueger. Her child, Freddy. The bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Yeah, they could have they could have made it simple. Just said Freddy's an asshole, just like that. Be done with yeah, that, right? <laughs> That's all it is. He's just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, like just let him be evil. I don't know. And but again, that's also just me. I am never a fan of when sequels explore the backstories of their monsters. I'm just very rarely into that. Um, like, uh, not to jump to a different film, but that that was actually the problem I had with Rob Zombie's interpretation of Halloween was giving us so much of Michael Myers' childhood and creating this, like, really unhappy home life for him. Funny story. But, I've never seen the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. Ah, uh, bless I've you. I've never seen them. <laughs> <laughs> I've avoided those with the plague. Uh, I hate them with a 
fiery passion. I know I'm I'm kind of alone in that, actually. Like, there is a huge handful of uh, Halloween fans that don't like the films, but I meet more people who like them on a regular basis than people who don't. So it's nice to talk to someone who hasn't even seen them. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's something I've avoided. I, I hate remakes. Yeah, same. Um, <laughs> especially if they're not warranted like if you're talking about a movie made 20 years ago 30 years ago does it really need a remake at this point yeah no i could not agree with you more i actually had an entire episode devoted to that it's called my complicated relationship with remakes <laughs> um I, there have been a couple that i enjoy but a, a very select few and for the most part yeah the word unnecessary comes to mind the remake of nightmare on elm street entirely unnecessary i haven't seen that, that either <laughs> well guys just all around i fucking hate the remake of nightmare on the street for what i understand as far as that goes craven as she said in an interview neither him or robert england were consulted about coming on for this film uh they just wanted to start completely new and rewrite the history you know that's the other thing with remakes you know kind of tying this back into dream warriors is is with horror movie remakes a lot of the time i think you have to step back and ask yourself who is this for are you making this remake with the fans of the original in mind are you paying homage to the original creators of this film and the people who love it or are you exclusively trying to create a new audience using your interpretation of, you know, of that art. And one of the things that I really love about like Dream Warriors as a sequel is that it was made with such love for the original film. Yeah. If I feel like a sequel is being made specifically for a new audience and, and you know, doing those sort of things where they just kind of retcon everything that came before them and, and it, it, it bothers me. So that's one of the things I love about Dream Warriors, how weighted the first film feels within it. Yeah, I, I got to agree with that. It kind of reminds me of like the Evil Dead 1 and 2 to a point yeah. where... You know, you could step in not knowing anything whatsoever. The first one had more Freddy development than the third one did. I think the first one was, what, 10 minutes of dialogue, I think they said? Or yeah. he was on screen for 10 minutes. He wasn't even on screen that much on this one either. And I think that's what made part three so well, because the focus still wasn't on Freddy at that point. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And, and I think, too, you know, one advantage that I think Dream Warriors has over the first one is that while maintaining a little bit of that restraint with Freddy, like he still wasn't the star of the film, but they focused a little bit more on the depiction of dreams in a way that really worked very well that they didn't really do in the first nightmare. Because the first nightmare, we do see, um, you know, several of Nancy's nightmares. But for the most part, we see, at least for me and, and what I took away from the original film, we see more of what's happening in the real world as a result of what's happening in the dream. Whereas in Dream Warriors, we get to see a lot of the, the dream horror. Now, I'm going to ask you something. Okay. You mentioned how much you love Nancy. I do. How would you have felt if Kristen was the one that died and Nancy survived? How do you think that would have changed the story? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I would have liked it nearly as much. I think it was important for Kristen to be the one to survive. I, I feel like if they had continued on with Kristen's story, that would be that would be more true. But I like that she survives. It really is kind of a bit of a, t a passing of the torch. And also, again, and I apologize for continuing to reference New Nightmare. What I really like about, you know, New Nightmare is everything we get from Heather and by extension, Nancy in that film. And I feel like if Nancy hadn't died at the end of three, we wouldn't have gotten quite as much out of New Nightmare. It used to really break my heart and it still does. I don't like when that happens. I don't like when we put characters, particularly final girls through hell just to bring them back and kill them off. I'm not a fan of that. But 
her death really did serve a purpose in Dream Warriors. I think Kristen's death would have felt a lot more like that to me, where it's like, why would we put this girl through all this shit just to kill her off at the end? They didn't really continue Kristen's story in part four either. So yeah, That's what I mean. I feel like if they had continued Kristen's story, it right. would have been better, but still. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Can't change it now unless uh, Michael Bay gets his hands on it. And we don't. Oh do my that. God. Shush, shush your face. <laughs> So what about you, though? How do you feel about the way Dream Warriors ends? I don't think there was enough closure on it. I'm not as hung up on the original characters like uh, Nancy and all them. However, you say Kristen would have given more weight. I think Nancy would have actually given more weight. Every antagonist has to have that strong protagonist. And if you're killing off Nancy, technically her second film, you're not really getting that strong protagonist. Yeah. And so I, I, that's where I was let down. Kristen, I really didn't care if she lived or died in the whole movie. Taryn, I would have actually liked to see survive. Oh, yeah. Taryn, Taryn was a fucking badass. When I was a kid, especially, man, I thought Taryn was so cool. <laughs> in my dreams, I'm beautiful. Out of all the kids, though, she also had the most problems. Mm-hmm. It would have been nice to see her be the one that survives to the end of the movie. She gets rid of her demons, so to speak. Kristen, I think her character was just weak. She wasn't really one of the strong final girls, so to speak. Oh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, even her, like, dream power, it was just, like, tumbling, you know? Like, <laughs> like yeah. there was a, a, a kind of, like, wallflower quality to her, which I think is a smart casting choice. Casting a, a very sweet, timid girl, you don't need a lot of character development because you immediately want to take care of her and protect her. It's like an instinctual thing in the mind. And so it was a good casting choice because I do think that Kristen still lands as a character. But yeah, I would have absolutely loved to see a little bit more than just she comes from a you know not so great home life and her personality is kind of meh she doesn't really have much of a personality but then again she's also surrounded by characters like Kincaid and Taryn who have very big personalities so when I view her character I think of her like an eight-year-old nine-year-old child as far as personality goes yeah she has that disposition about her okay she's a sweet little girl that's that's fantastic but at the same time is if she's going to fight Freddy, she's got to be a little bit on a stronger side as well. And you didn't see that evolution of her. If she had started out timid and you watch her slowly become strong, that yeah. would have been a whole different outcome as far as my opinion on her. You know what I mean? Right. She stayed the same throughout the whole movie. And it's like there was no growth. No, that's true. That's very true. Well, so who is your favorite character in Dream Warriors? Ooh, now, that's probably the hardest question you're going to ask me tonight. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> that really is because it's, it's really tough to decide because i can't pick freddie <laughs> I, I i can't uh, you, you know, could sure. i would judge you but you could <laughs> most people judge me on that he's got great power so you know and i always yeah. tend to root for the bad guy but uh <laughs> i think if i had to pick my favorite character it'd probably be joey only because I could kind of relate to him to a point. He was probably the character in the whole movie that I could actually, as a kid, relate to because the way his personality was kind of shy. That's how I was at that age. Yeah. But as an adult, I like Freddie. So <laughs> 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 that's what it is. <laughs> Yeah, 
no, I think I, I'm really glad that you wanted to talk about this film specifically um, because I feel exactly the opposite. I I rarely root for the bad guy. I mean, I love the villains. Don't get me wrong. I fucking love a good villain, but I never want them to win. My favorite you know, character as an adult in the film is definitely Nancy. And uh, as far as the kids go, I think also, yeah, I, I, I love Kincaid. He tugs at all the right heartstrings for me. And I love, I think he has some of the, the better one-liners in the film and he's, he's, he's very, funny and very tough and independent and i so i like the character of kincaid a lot taryn complete badass like i said worshipped her when i was a kid um but yeah i think all in all i i I like joey the most he's he's my favorite character listen joey i just wanted to get you alone for a second i mean look i really like you he also has i think one of the most shining moments in the film uh, where we really kind of get to see them utilize the concept of those dream powers very well. So yeah, I don't know. And I and I like that he survives and I really like his death in four. So like <laughs> We definitely have to touch upon one character and we haven't mentioned her yet. Jennifer? No. Oh. Elizabeth Sims. I don't know if you got the same impression of her. I don't know if that's what they were going for. She reminded me kind of like that nurse that was in uh one flew over to Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah, yeah. She had that personality. She wasn't sympathetic to the kids. I don't think she really wanted to help him to begin with. I think that's Wes Craven. And I know that he has specifically spoken out against direct influence from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, I just think that Wes Craven had absolutely no faith in like competent nurses because like i mean really like anytime west craven has ever written a nurse they have been like a pile of garbage human i i I don't know why he just he didn't write like good nurses (laughs) they were all like nurse ratchet types she's a bitch (laughs) i wonder if a nurse like really like hurt him maybe he had to get a shot and the nurse was just like had like no bedside manner or something and he just had a really bad experience at a hospital or something (laughs) and that's the funny thing with her is i actually wanted to see something happen to her during the movie and it never did. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. You would think that she would have gotten some kind of comeuppance, but yeah, she didn't. <laughs> Give her some hypnosil and see what happens. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to any more of this. How much longer are you going to go on blaming your dreams for your own weakness? That brings me to another question. I think you may have already touched down on your answer, but I don't want to be presumptuous because you, you were talking about how the scariest moment in the movie for you was Philip's death. Um, yeah. Is that also your favorite kill in the film? I would say, I would put that probably right up there. Yeah. Just because it was simple in effect, the less you see, the more graphic you interpret it in your mind. And like I said, we never seen the cuts. Yeah. So as he's cutting, we don't know until he actually stands up and we see the damage but we didn't see the blades cutting the skin and so i think from that perspective that's probably going to be the best i'm not much of a gore hound and i really love the less is more routes when directors go that way so i would definitely say that would be up there i think that's a good one to have as a favorite especially you know considering that it was like the first kill of the film like that i mean that they really started out hard <laughs> yeah even when uh Kristen's mother got her head cut off that was kind of fun uh, I, I laughed at that yeah i laughed at it now <laughs> i laughed at it done i, I remember my father he's like is something wrong with you 
<laughs> now, see, if if they had just took her head off and she didn't say anything, yeah, I think it would have been a different outcome. Yeah, but the fact that she was still snarky, <laughs> it's just like okay. Oh yeah, it's it's very cartoony. When when I was young, though, yeah, it what really got me about that though wasn't her talking after her head had been cut off. What really got to me about that moment was the moment when we realize it's a dream and that that's that's a tactic that's like really effective on me like false waking i was actually just talking about this a, a couple weeks ago when i was talking about puppet master yeah. um the the scene where alex wakes up and he thinks that he's waking up in his hotel room and that he's not dreaming anymore and then he rolls the covers down of his bed and the, the severed heads are at the foot of his bed even today at 37 years old it really got me false waking up moments yeah, they, they affect me. And when I was a kid, it really, I, I did not handle that scene very well. But yeah, it's so cartoony once their head comes off. Damn it, Kristen, you ruin everything. Every time I bring a man home, you spoil it. You know what your shrink says? You're just trying to get a little attention. I remember when I was laughing at that, and it's like, oh, so this is what I'm in store for. So I thought it was just going to be like a running gag movie. Yeah. What's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually got the Nightmare on Elm Street 3 poster hanging up in my bedroom. That's yeah. awesome. I have I have the original Nightmare poster in my room. Well, in my living room. But I would love a Dream Warriors poster. The The cover art for the film, it's so iconic to me. And it just takes me back. I never even thought about watching this movie if it wasn't for a poster in a video store window. Oh, yeah? <laughs> That's that's how the whole thing got started. Was at the local video store. I was in the window. I'm like, and it just grabbed me. I'm like, what is this? I've never <laughs> seen it before. And that's what started the hounding and everything else like that. I can definitely understand why it's your favorite. You know, I think it it suits you as a favorite horror film. I think. Well, for me, definitely, yeah, because it, it a lot of firsts. <laughs> lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and I get that. You never forget your first. You know, <laughs> like literally. And you know, I still yeah. haven't forgotten this movie. I still pull it out of its box. <laughs> <laughs> but I am so glad that you wanted to talk about this movie. Like I said, I hadn't really talked about Nightmare much, apart from just trashing the ever living shit out of the remake in that episode that I did. I'm glad to start with Dream Warriors. I think I think it is a really good place to begin. Um, because it is that bridge, like what we talked about, where it kind of acts as a bridge between the, you know, first sort of era of Freddy and then the the second era. Um, and it's fun. It's a fun film. It's, it's still a kind of creepy film there. Like I said, are a couple of moments that really creep me out and it has such lovable characters um, and just all in all. And it has a fucking kick-ass accompanying music video. So, like, <laughs> overall, exactly. I like it. One quick thing. By the way, thank you so much for joining me tonight. This has really been a lot of fun. Before we go, though, I do have one more, one final question. Okay, group's in session. Straight talk only in this room. I know that you already kind of half answered this on Slasher, but my worst case scenario for the week uh, is Dream Warriors themed. And I was hoping I could get you to elaborate a little on your answer since I have you oh. here. Oh, on uh, Rockstar Power? Yeah, yeah. So the, the question for worst case scenario, which you've fallen asleep to discover that you're a dream warrior, what is your special power? And uh, you said you'd be a rock star, but you didn't answer the bonus question. <laughs> so I was wondering if you would uh, elaborate for me. What would, okay. you, what would that look like? <laughs> Some really wonderful music coming out of guitar and just, <laughs> you know, attack of what music. <laughs> <laughs> now, how it would hurt me, the music being so bad, my ears bleed and I go deaf. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a 
oh, that'd be great. Like in your mind, it's going to be like the best power ballad ever played. But as soon as your fingers hit the strings, your head just starts oozing blood from like every orifice. Exactly. <laughs> that would be amazing. I would watch that movie. <laughs> Imagine a rock version of uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Yeah. <laughs> My loneliness is killing me. So let's do one quick thing, though, before we finish up. Yeah. If you want to, how about putting the Nightmare on Elm Streets and... You want to do a ranking? I would love yes. to do it. Let's do a ranking. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Yep, you could go first. Okay. I really have not put a whole lot of thought into this, but I know I'm going to probably catch some shade for this because... <laughs> Got to understand first, before I give my ranking, got to understand that I I was born in 83, really started to get into horror films uh, in and around the mid-90s. Uh, I kind of consider myself having been reared by Wes Craven, and I am an, a massive fan of meta storytelling. Okay? I love it. <laughs> my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film is New Nightmare. So that would be number one for me. However, it's completely reliant on the original film. It, the, the New Nightmare would not be as great if the, the first film didn't exist. So it's like really hard for me to choose between those two films for the number one spot. Like they're constantly interchangeable to me, but would be New Nightmare, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. We'd, we're doing best to worst or worst to best? Uh, let's, we could do a best to worst. Okay, good, because that's what I was doing. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, New Nightmare, uh, and, and then Original Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors. Uh, God, people are going to stop listening to my podcast after they fucking hear this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Freddy's dead. <laughs> uh, then Dream Master, Freddy's Revenge, no, Freddy's Dead, Freddy's Revenge, Dream Master, and then Dream Child would probably well, be you, how I would rank them. <laughs> you got Freddy's Dead up pretty high. <laughs> I know. I was so impressionable when I saw Freddy's Dead. It's the same thing with like Texas Chainsaw Next Generation. Like I don't want to love these movies, but the 90s made me love them. All right, once again, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. So that would be my ranking. <laughs> okay. So mine, obviously, part three would be the best. Two would be New Nightmare. Three would be the original. I'd probably put part five at four. Yeah. Part four at five. Then Freddy's Dead. <laughs> and then the remake. Oh, God. Remember. I wasn't even. I wasn't even. Doing the out. remake. <laughs> oh. Oh, I forgot number two. So yeah, it'll go two, then a remake. I'm sorry. Okay. Not a fan of Freddy's Revenge, I take it. <laughs> I had one nuisance and I still can't get over it. And that's the fact that he screamed in such a high pitch. It ir- irritated the living cow out of me. So on <laughs> automatic points lost just on that. Well, it makes wow. me very happy that you like New Nightmare so much. I, I feel like I'm validated because, yeah, I, I fucking love that movie. <laughs> what made New Nightmare so great was a delve into the reality. I think that actually set the template for uh, Blair Witch Book of Shadows because it explored the after effects of the movies. Yeah. I think that's where what makes that movie so special because I don't think up to New Nightmare, nobody really explored 
what happens after the movie's over with. Oh, it's so true. Like, it broke complete ground in terms of meta storytelling. It's It was a pioneer. Why are you calling me Nancy, John? Why are you calling me John? And then Wes Craven destroyed that Jenner with Scream. But oh, no. we're not going <laughs> to... <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you break my heart at the very end of our conversation? <laughs> I just want to thank Timma one last time for hanging out with me and sharing your thoughts on and experiences with Dream Warriors. I had a blast chatting with you, man, and I hope to have you on again soon so we can talk about, you know, why you're wrong about Scream. We did hang out for nearly two hours, so quite a bit of our conversation was trimmed down. And for some reason, we didn't talk about Dr. Gordon, played by Craig Wasson, at all. I don't know why. I, I love him. I think he's a great character. I love I loved Craig Wasson, you know, loved him in Body Double. We just didn't get to him, I guess. <laughs> Keep an eye out over the next couple of days. I've scrapped the transcription thing. Full disclosure, I had no idea how time-consuming transcription really is. Instead, I'm going to compile the bits of our discussion that were cut, like our memories grow up with the Blair Witch Project and the official Scream debate challenge, and I'll release that as a kind of miniature episode sometime in the next couple of days. Additionally, if you have a favorite or least favorite scary movie that I haven't explored yet on the podcast and you'd like to join me here to discuss it, please reach out to me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, please feel free to email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Before we move on to this week's scenario, I wanted to share a couple of my favorite fun facts about Dream Warriors. Firstly, the famous Welcome to Prime Time bitch, undeniably one of Freddy's most beloved one-liners, was ad-libbed by Robert England, as was This Is It, Jennifer, your big break on TV. Both lines were improvised during separate takes, and Chuck Russell liked them both so much he decided to cut them together into one scene. For all our hemming and hawing about Freddy becoming a bit of a comedy act, we actually kind of have Robert to thank for him doing it with such artistry. The glove worn by Freddy in this film is a famous one, as it disappeared from the set at one point during the production and mysteriously reappeared on the set of a different movie shot in 87, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2. The glove was one of several playful jabs the directors took at one another, all in good fun of course throughout their careers, i.e. you think you know scary? You don't know scary, sir. For example, Nancy is nodding off to Evil Dead in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. A torn poster for The Hills Have Eyes is hanging on the wall in Evil Dead. And when Randy provides a list of viewing options at Stu's party in Scream, Evil Dead is among them and ultimately overlooked in favor of Halloween. Even after Wes Craven's death, Sam Raimi kept this tradition and his memory alive by including a Freddy glove and a poster for The Hills Have Eyes in episodes of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Dream Warriors was shot for $4 million and grossed over $40 million at the box office, making it the third highest grossing film in the franchise, and it was banned in Queensland, Australia for three years, specifically because of Taron's death. As Timma mentioned, Taryn is kind of the kid with the most problems, not the least of which is drug addiction, and when Freddy defeats her, his fingers are replaced by syringes and he forces her to OD. Jennifer Rubin, who played Taryn, has recalled that fans have said her character inspired them to quit using drugs. Ken Sagos got the role of Kincaid by cussing out Chuck Russell, and while working on the film, Ira Hyden, who played Will, said he only had one bad dream, and in it, he and Freddy robbed a bank together. Thank you.
All right, so this week's worst case scenario, I've been told, was a bit of a challenge. But you guys came through. We got some great answers, and I'm, I'm really excited to read them here. The scenario is, you have fallen asleep to discover that you are a dream warrior. What is your special power? And the bonus question, how would Freddy turn it against you? JohnMan22 said his power would be invisibility, uh, which I like because it's kind of like a classic superpower. And Freddy would turn it against him by making him appear at a crime scene, which actually kind of ties into Will Hyden's dream about robbing a bank with him. I like the idea of a version of Freddy that just kind of goes for like fraud and framing rather than, you know, turning into a giant worm and trying to eat people alive. GoGoHead365 said telepathy to mind fuck the shit out of everyone. He didn't answer the bonus question, but he did post a really great gif. I, uh... <laughs> I really, I'm very impressed by GoGoHead's collection of gifts. And yeah, I think, you know, telepathy is also a classic superpower. I wonder how you would use it in the dream world. I mean, obviously you would still have like an internal monologue while you were sleeping and dreaming. You would still have thoughts that people could read. And I wonder too, like if you could read Freddy's mind, what, uh, what would he be thinking? I think I was supposed to be a lawyer. Chrome Skull said, I'd have the ability to be immune to Freddy's attacks, sort of like dream armor. And then I'd put myself in a coma for life and keep chasing Freddy into other people's dreams and stop him that way. As long as I was alive in that coma, nobody else would have to die. I think that's such a creative answer. Uh, he'd use it against me with taunts. I'd have to give up my own life to stop him for a while, so he'd know I'd run out of time eventually. That would be such an interesting life. Like, your entire life is spent in the dream world, keeping Freddy busy and stopping him from, you know, killing others. I, I, I like that it it kind of harkens back to uh, the ending of Dream Warriors, actually, where the light comes on in Kristen's replica of Nancy's house, which I have come to interpret as Nancy turning on the light, you know, her spirit kind of acting as a dream guardian for Dr. Gordon and, and the others. I think that would sort of put you in a similar role. You would be a dream guardian. I think that would be a noble job. Exhausting and stressful, but noble all the same. Eli said, I'd be a shapeshifter, able to look like anyone or anything. I'd use it to hide from him in my dreams so he couldn't kill me. He'd use it against me by making my dream into a mirrored hallway in a funhouse so the reflections would confuse me and give me nowhere to hide. I love these answers so much. They're so fucking creative. You guys, you guys are amazing. First of all, I love the concept of being able to like transform into anything, including like inanimate objects. It's sort of like prop hunt, the Nightmare on Elm Street edition. But also I, I I think that that seems like a very Freddy thing to do, you know, to just turn the dreamscape into a fun house of mirrors and, and give you nowhere to go. That's, that's a good answer. <laughs> Gory Rory said, I'd only want a power specifically to annoy Freddy, like being able to say all of his one-liners before he does. I imagine he would use this against me, though, like a Looney Tunes skit, making me eventually insult myself and die of embarrassment or confusion. <laughs> I'm, I'm really surprised, actually, that in later films, we didn't have at least one character die of embarrassment. I guess there was one death in part six that kind of, that felt quite a bit like death by confusion slash embarrassment. And lastly, we have an answer from Anthony Brownlee, who, by the way, is a horror author and also the biggest Fred head that I have ever met in my life. He said, my expanded imagination would be my dream power, turning Freddy's world against him, but he could use it back on me by exploiting the confines of my darkest creative thoughts meant only for fictional characters. Thank you guys so much for your answers. I hope you're not getting sick of worst case scenario because I have so much fun doing it. And as I've said in the past, I love seeing what you come up with, especially for a question like this. In my dream, I would be uh, like a rock DJ. I would have these noise canceling headphones that would protect me against Freddy's one-liners and 
my voice would hurt him, but he would use it against me by playing my own voice back to me and making my head explode, which I can tell you from experience is uh, not far from what actually happens, me having to listen to my own voice all the time. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all have a delightfully nightmarish weekend. Stay safe, stay sane, channel your inner wizard master, and as usual, creep it real. Thank you.